Episode 207 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. I'm Eric Hayes. I'm a private pilot, instrument rated. I fly a Piper Cherokee 6, and I'm based out of Los Angeles, California. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. As you might be listening, you might be seeing, hey, there's a different intro. Is Justin back? Yes, we are back. I'm currently holding Emmett right now, hoping he doesn't make any sounds and cry and ruin this intro, or else I have to do it again for the 10th time. But here we are. AV Nation, today's episode is with Eric from SoCal Flying Monkey. He is one of my favorite YouTube channels, and he has the most amazing Cherokee 6. And he he has a sweet video that everyone should watch, uh, whether you want to do aviation content or not, but buying a Cherokee 6 for $30,000 and how he fixed it up. It's amazing. You obviously can't do that in this market right now. But anyways, Eric is on the podcast. He has a great story. We talk about just the mentality of being a YouTuber, why he didn't get into aviation earlier and why it took him an extra 15 years and how he stepped back a little bit from his first try at aviation. So Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, please leave us a review on iTunes, check out Pilot's Coffee and make sure to subscribe to us on all of our channels and go to YouTube and Instagram at Pilot to Pilot. Even Nation, without any further ado, here's Eric from SoCal Flying Monkey. Eric, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. How's it going, oh, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, we kind of talked a little before, but short notice, you are the first one back from the baby moon. I don't know what to call it. My time off. <laughs> so I, as I said, yeah. you might have to carry the load here. If I find myself stumbling, just feel free to, to run with it and you can start doing whatever you want. I will do my best and congratulations <laughs> on your baby. Super exciting. I appreciate it. Well, hey, that's enough about me, enough about the baby. Let's talk about you. Why aviation? Uh, I guess we'll get into that a little, little bit more into that later, but just overall, why did you want to be a pilot? Was this a lifelong goal? Was this something that you turned like 30 or 40 and you're just like, boom, I want to be a pilot? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure why. That's a That's a great question and I'm, always try to think about that. And people ask me how I got started. And uh, I'm not totally sure, but I, I do know that when I was a teenager, my cousin had a, a Piper. I think it was like a twin Comanche. He was actually based in Argentina and we went to visit him and he took me for a flight in it. And I I remember really liking it, but I wasn't like, oh, I've got to do this. But I guess I thought like, yeah, this would be something cool to do eventually. And then later on in my 20s, um, my, I, my career was starting to click and things were going well. And I thought, yeah, maybe I should try to fly. For some reason, it just sort of like popped into my head. I was like, oh, that, that looks really cool. I want a new adventure. So um, yeah, I started flying and then didn't finish up, got married, had kids, ran out of money, never finished it. And then 15 years later, um, I was kind of sitting on the couch one day. My kids were out off at camp and my wife was uh, visiting her family. Um, out of state. I was by myself over the summer and um, 
And I just thought, man, I can do this now. So I got back into it and finished up and got my uh, private pilot. It was, it was great. What do you say to people? Cause you're not alone. Like <laughs> I guarantee if you're outside and you pull a bunch of people, you're going to find a lot of people want to be a pilot or would love the opportunity to fly, but one, they can't find time Two, it just doesn't make sense financially, but you kind of ran into that and you overcame that 15 years later. What do you say to someone that is going through that right now that has the opportunity to either go fly or not fly and they're trying to make that decision? Would you tell them to, to push on or is it important to kind of do it when it's right, when the finances are there, when the timing is right? I would say try to find a way to make aviation part of your life because there are so many ways um, to make it happen and there are affordable ways. I know there's, um, you know, like if you're a young person, there's uh, like um, the aviation explorers and there's all kinds of organizations that will help you get started. There's scholarships. Um, and then there's also affordable ways to fly to like, you know, you have to meet the right. It's always like, you know, who you know. So you meet the right people. Somebody's got a plane. You meet a, a CFI who's willing to help you out or whatever. Um, and if you can make aviation a part of your life, it just fulfills and enriches so much. So I say, go for it. I kind of regret um, giving up on it. It's not that, that I gave up so easily, but I, I pr- rightly so prioritize my family and that's important. But I think it, I could have probably made aviation part of my life the whole time going on. Maybe not finished up with a private pilot, but just taking a lesson every now and then. Um, and challenging myself in that way. So I think, you know, make it happen for yourself. People think a lot of times flying is financially so out of reach and it's not a cheap hobby, but as an example, like I, I had a Piper Cherokee 180 and I sold it to a group of five friends who were splitting the cost, the purchase price and splitting the own, the uh, operating costs. And when you break it down, um, I think you could probably own and operate an airplane like that for like 200 bucks a month between five people. So it can be somewhat affordable. Yeah. But you got to find five people or four other people you can trust with your airplane, right? (laughs) (laughs) You got to find, yeah, four like, uh, you know, like-minded people. And that's, that's a big challenge. But I think if you're tenacious and you stick with it and you really want to do it, you can make it happen. Especially now, you know, you've got like all the type forums on the internet, all the Facebook groups, you know, um, I think it's easier to connect with people who have similar interests. So what was it that actually changed? Why 15 years later, did you determine this is finally the right time for you to go fly? I think like, um, you know, my kids were off at camp, so I, I, you know, I wasn't as busy with them in that particular moment. Um, and, uh, I had saved up uh, a lot of money over the last 15 years and my career was, you know, you know, pretty well established and much more on track. And, um, I think those, you know, set of circumstances just sort of came together and made me realize like, Hey, I can actually do this now. Like, you know, I can make it happen. So let's go for it. And then I sort of never looked back. What was it about that time that you were able to push through? Because I mean, even you wait 15 years and you go do it again, there's still things that try to pull you away. I guess what I'm trying to get at is just like, how did you mentally like say, this is the time I'm actually going to do this and push through all the adversity that came? Because I'm guessing you didn't become any less busy. Family didn't come less important to you. Like your other priorities didn't change, but you actually found the way to make this work in your life. Yeah, that's really, that's really insightful. Um, yeah, what changed? I I guess it was like uh, I was happy doing what I was doing, but I was wanting something 
more. I was I was searching for that another challenge in my life. Not not that work hadn't become challenging. My you know work is there's always new challenges in work, and I'm always step trying to step up my game um, with my cinematography work professionally. But um, I think I just was craving a new adventure and a new challenge. You know, like it's not like life was just monotonous and boring because it it wasn't. But I just wanted that extra bit of fulfillment. I think some you know part of me knew that like I had experienced a lot of that feeling of challenge, achievement, and fulfillment in my first go round with it. That I think I was craving that. Did your family give any pushback? Or were they like, I don't know if I want you to fly. Like the kids are still young. Like what if something happens? Or was you like, get out of here. You need to go do something else. I need you out of the house. No, my wife was supportive of it. Um, I, I, I don't exactly remember what her reaction was, but um, I think she was, she was pretty supportive. She's been pretty supportive of everything. Um, the buying the airplane thing <laughs> was a little like, not everybody was like super enthusiastic about it but i think they kind of realized like hey you know you put in all this work this is after of course i got my at the end of getting the the private pilot um when we decided to buy the airplane or i decided to buy the airplane um they they were like okay i guess what else are we going to do with this that's crazy. I just, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, we're getting to the stage at a point where we might be able to get an airplane. And I mean, obviously right now it's not really the best market to buy. When I looked at your video, the one that when I emailed you off of, uh, I bought my Piper Cherokee 6 for 30K. That plane would probably be, a project plane would probably be like $90,000 right now. And then you have to put the extra 100 and 120 grand into it. So it's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, the airplane market really seems to have skyrocketed in the last three to five years. Um, I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know if it'll come back down. I don't think anybody really knows, but yeah, it would be a kind of a daunting task now to try to do that. I get a lot of emails from people like, Hey, where can I find a similar thing? And for that price, I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I guess keep looking or try to find somebody locally who's not listing it. Cause anything that's listed on, you know, on the typical sites usually is going to be what the market's going for now, yeah. which is pretty high. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're into the, like if, if you have an airplane and you're going to sell it, nine out of 10 people aren't going to sell it for less than the market value. You know, that'd just be kind of dumb on, on their part. Money-wise, it's unfortunate if you want to buy the airplane, cause you're probably going to end up losing some money in the long run. But if you buy it for, for enjoyment and you buy it for pleasure and for fun, then like, if, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of money, no matter how you look at it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. And, and I think people will sometimes give you a hard time about like how much money you put into the airplane or how much you put into upgrading it. And, um, you know, they're like, well, you're not going to get a return on that investment, but the return on the investment is the fun and the joy and the fulfillment and the adventure of it. Um, it's not necessarily like, Oh, what am I going to be able to sell for later? So, um, I try to think of it in that way too. Like if you can make it work financially, um, maybe not worry so much about what you're going to get out of it later money back wise, but what you're going to get out of it with the experience and the lifestyle and the personal fulfillment and challenge and everything that comes with aviation that I think a lot of the listeners of your podcast probably have a good taste of, you know? Yeah. And, and peace of mind too. If you getting that fancy avionics setup makes you feel better about flying and makes your family feel better about flying, it doesn't matter what the price is. If you can get your family in the airplane and, and have the fun, then that's all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. If it makes your flying safer. Yeah. I would say like 
put put money into it if it makes it like the airplane safer or faster. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like exactly. oh, this will make it safer or faster. Great, make it's it like one extra knot. Know, it's fifteen grand. <laughs> That's yeah, it funny. does start to get expensive trying yeah. to, you know, make the airplane faster. That's for sure. So talk a little bit about your professional life. How did you get into cinematography? How did you break into this industry? Was it something you always wanted to do or was it just how college progressed and your career progressed and family, friends, and it kind of pushed you into the industry? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, New Jersey, Northwest New Jersey. Um, and as a kid, I always liked movies and I just always thought that I wanted to make movies and know necessarily what that meant. But, um, I spent a lot of time as a kid, uh, trying to make movies with my friends. I would mow lawns and do jobs, uh, like babysitting and stuff to, um, save money to buy video cameras. And so I bought my first video camera and then would just, you know, like go into the forest and make stupid action movies with my friends. (laughs) And that was so much fun. And I thought, you know, at, at some point in high school, my mom, my mom was like, you know, they have film school. I was like, what? They have film school. That sounds great. I want to do that. So um, she was super supportive and, uh, you know, basically showed me that this was a possibility. Um, and so I went to film school at uh, USC film school in LA. And I didn't know cinematography was specifically what I wanted to do going in. But by the time I was done, I thought, yeah, that that's that's the discipline that I like the most and probably am the best at. Uh, um, so yeah, just kind of went from there. What comes after school for that? I'm guessing uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to an aviation program where you don't just get hired by the biggest biggest whatever outfit in Hollywood. You got to work your way up. You know, you got to uh, start on the the D sets and work yourself up to the A sets or find your niche inside of that industry. Yeah, the film business is really tough. There's definitely not not um, one specific path to uh, finding success, and it's you know you don't just like go apply for for an onset job. It's not like you have a like uh, a formal resume and you just sort of like send send them all out and apply. It's so much like who you know and trying to trying to work your way up and gain the skills. It's really it's, it's sort of a difficult thing to pin down. People ask me like, what should I do? I don't know. Like just try to get on set, try to meet people, try to network and have, you know, eventually meet people who you can kind of come up with. And that, that was one thing that film school did was give me that network of people that we were all coming out of school together and we were all trying to make it in the business. So we ended up getting together and making a bunch of short films. Um, at film school, I learned how to produce also. So, I told some of my friends who wanted to direct, I said, look, I'll produce your films, but I also want to shoot them and start building my cinematography reel. So I produced a few short films and, um, and shot them as well. And then some of those went to film festivals. We had a couple of them at Sundance and I got my reel together. And then from there started to get hired as a cinematographer. And in the meantime, I was working as a camera assistant, which is like a lower part of the camera department, um, on larger productions, just learning, you know, you're observing what everybody else is doing and picking up techniques and networking and making money to pay rent. So I worked a lot for free for a long time shooting and even camera assisting and did a lot of jobs like freebie jobs um, and eventually like built my reel and got paying work. When did you decide to make the kind of entrance into the YouTube world? Because I'm guessing as you're coming up as a cinematographer and putting together your reel, you know, YouTube started and it was kind of like, no one, I mean, some people posted videos and now they're 
pretty famous, but not everyone kind of jumped in and jumped on it. But now it's a, it's its whole thing. You create your own brand. You can really do a lot there. And people from YouTube get hired to do other things in Hollywood and, and all of the above. So when did you start seeing YouTube as a viable option? Was it just for airplanes or did you start putting your videos on YouTube before? No, it was just for airplanes. I mean, like the YouTube thing is a recent thing for me and um, is pretty separate from my cinematography career. Um, it kind of started as a pandemic project a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, I started doing videos a little bit before that. I was seeing this other stuff on YouTube, aviation videos, and I thought, you know what? That, that would be really fun to do. It'd be a way to sort of also um, keep the memories of our trips with, with, the, with my family. Um, like my first video is just my daughter and I going to Big Bear. Mm. And I thought, man, let me just like try this out and see, is it, is it going to be fun to do? And part of it also is like in my work, I'm shooting a lot of commercials and I'm, I'm shooting for, you know, clients and agencies and I'm basically like doing all the stuff that they want. There's still some creative freedom. I still get to do like interesting creative stuff and it is fulfilling creatively, but it's not my stories. Right. So, um, and I sort of got into making movies as a kid to tell stories. Like I want to tell my own stories. So this was kind of a way that I could tell my own stories around something that I really enjoy and that I could share it with the other people who are really passionate about it. So the community aspect of it and the creative freedom aspect of it kind of pulled me into it. And I started making a couple of little videos on YouTube and then the pandemic happened and I thought, man, our film business just shut down in March of uh, 2020. And uh, there was, it was clear there wasn't going to be any work for like at least a month or two solid, like just complete shutdown. And I, and I thought I've got to stay creative. I've got to do stuff. I can't just sit around and watch Netflix. I've got to like create things. Cause that's what I do all the time. So I'm like, let me just put all my time into doing this. Cause it's like, there's just nothing else I can do. I can do this by myself and the airplane. So I started making just these videos with my family during that time and putting more time into it. And it was really fun. So now we're back to work and it's super fun to do it. So I'm just going to continue on with it. Are you having trouble finding the time now? Now that you, cause like you said, it was a pandemic project. You had all the time in the world to kind of be uh, expressing in your own or express your own opinion and not your own opinion, but make your own videos and kind of have the freedom for it. But now you are back to your full-time job. Is it hard to do both or is it just kind of uh, you created a good system and you're ready to go? Yeah, it's definitely hard to find time to do both. Um, fortunately, you know, like I work freelance in commercials and um, it's possible for me to have a few days off here and there. It's not just weekends off. Um, like, you know, in the beginning of January here was, uh, it's a, a little bit slower time, like December and the beginning of January, things are just starting to ramp back up after the new year. So I've had like a week or two here where I can really, crank you know capture a lot of content and crank out a lot of content kind of stockpile it a little bit so um yeah it's it's definitely a challenge to find the time but um as my kids also like they're they're busier now with their you know after school activities in high school and middle school they're a little bit older so we're we're not doing as much stuff with them which is a little bit sad but <laughs> they have a little bit their own lives right yeah. so i have a little bit more time to like break away and do do some of this stuff 
So it's working out. As someone that's a cinematographer and does this for profession, that is a actual professional in making videos. You know, you know the angles, you have the gear, the cameras, everything. When you were first watching YouTube videos, were you like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like they don't understand angles. This is, this is awful. I can do so much better. Or were you surprised at kind of the, I don't want to say amateurism because this is their full-time job, but how, <laughs> how good they are at telling stories and, and the product that was there. Yeah, I think like definitely there's some stuff that I watch where I'm just like, oh man, I can't believe like this is an accept- acceptable, you know, <laughs> <laughs> some videos. I'm not, not specifically like no, aviation yeah. videos necessarily, but like, yeah. The, and then there's some things that they just don't have a story at all. Um, I, I'm basically like, I think there's things on YouTube also that do really well that are, are not like what I want to do. And I think there's always a, for any YouTube content creator, I think there's this constant like push and pull with like the kind of stuff you want to make and the kind of stuff that like is going to do well on this weird algorithm thing or that, you know, this particular audience is going to watch for a long time or be into. And because this particular project for me is really like a passion project, it's not necessarily going to be like my livelihood or anything. I have a, a, a decently well-established career that is I'm doing great at like super fun. But, uh, so I have the freedom to do like, Hey, I'm just going to make the stuff that I want to make that I like. And I really hope people enjoy it. And that stuff is going to be like story based and it's going to have the production value that I want it to have because I enjoy that. I enjoy watching that kind of stuff and I enjoy making it. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that's sort of, I, I kind of, digress from the, your original question, but, um, yeah, I was surprised at some of how, how some of that stuff looks or is, but, um, I still, I still think I'm going to do what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. So what you're saying though, more importantly, is you're not going to purposely jump out of an airplane <laughs> and a parachute out of one. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, <laughs> man, that is, that's a, that's crazy. Yeah, that, it is. that whole situation. I mean, I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but, I will say like as a content creator and I, I put, I, I posted on this on Instagram also. It was like as aviation content creators, we have a responsibility to portray aviation, um, in a responsible way, like in, in a way that reflects well on the GA community or the aviation community at large. And I, I take that really seriously in the kind of content that I do and try not to like amp things up for, you know, clickbait or, or, you know, I have been accused, which it seems crazy to me in comments of my YouTube videos, like, oh, you're, you're putting your family in danger on purpose for clicks. I'm like, that's crazy to me. Like to, and I, and I feel like I'm the opposite. I try to like really portray things like the decision-making process, try to be responsible, try to encourage like, Hey, you gotta, you know, if you, you can divert, if, uh, you know, it's not, it's fine to divert. It's fine to have a no-go decision. Like these are normal parts of aviation. I want to show that because that's the truth, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't really, like, I don't want to talk about the whole situation with, with how, well, I can't even remember his name, which is probably a good thing, but I want to talk about the trap that you can get in. It sounds like you're, you're pretty, you actually have a good system and you have the other job. So, you know, you're not constantly, you like the views, you want the views. It's great getting the views, but if one video doesn't do as well, I'm sure you don't lose too much sleep at night where other people, this is what they want. They want to be a YouTuber. This is all they want to do. 
what would you recommend for someone that has over 100,000 followers and subscribers on YouTube that has a good platform, that has a brand, that has built this? Uh, how do you avoid that trap, especially in aviation when, like you said, it's it, you have to be responsible because people are watching. What you do, even if it's slightly against maybe your SOPs or other SOPs or just the, the freedom of aviation and looks bad, other people, ten, other people might watch that and go try to do that as well because they saw you do it and they might think it's okay. So like you said, you have a responsibility. What would you say to someone to avoid that trap and avoid the clickbait game in aviation? Mm, yeah, that's, I don't know. I would say... I guess just be true to yourself because when it's all done at the end of the day, like you look back and you know, it's like, you want to make sure that you have integrity and you were, you know, true to yourself the whole time. You are doing things for other people. I think also like that, that's, it's, I think it would be difficult if this were like YouTube or just your job because you're just constantly at the mercy of, this algorithm and of what you think the audience wants. Cause you don't ever totally know you're always kind of guessing. And I feel that cause I'm looking at the numbers always. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. Right. Like, um, and I, I think that that would be, um, that would be a difficult temptation. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially if like, if it requires you to put food on your table. <laughs> yeah. And you see that you make the, you put, days, weeks into this video and it's beautiful. The story's great and it just doesn't get clicks. The algorithm doesn't pick it up where you see some Yahoo post this crazy video and it gets all these views and all these clicks. It just, it's inherently in your mind to be like, all right, well, I want to do what works. I want to chase what gets the views. Uh, so yeah, it, right. it's a crazy situation and I, I don't want to say it's all YouTube's fault, but they definitely have created uh, this kind of clickbaity um, content and people, I guess aviation might be a little bit different because people will just sit and watch videos that are 30 minutes long of someone taking off and landing and just talking and not, you know, like right. they will watch it. So there are people there, but uh, it just seems like uh, the clickbait thing just unfortunately does a lot for the algorithm. Yeah. I experienced the frustration. Like I, I made this video about our family's adventure going flying to Santa Barbara and paragliding. And That's I was loved what like that video is so close to me. Like it's, it's a personal video and I put a lot of time and effort into like, I had somebody helping shoot it and I, I did a, spent a lot of time editing it and the story and music and everything. And I was like, when I, before I published, it, I was like, this video is going to be so great. Like people are going to love this, like so much heart to it. It's going to be the best thing. Like, <laughs> and, and it just did not do well on my channel. Um, as far as like views, I get lots of great comments on it, but as far as just like the numbers thing, it just was not a high performing video <laughs> and it really like bummed me out. I was like, what? I don't understand this thing at, at all. I was like, ah, whatever. I'm still going to make stuff like this. Cause I, I go back and I watch that thing and I'm like, this is, this is good work right here. Like, this is what it's all about. Like our family adventure and like, there's so much like themes about my kids growing up and overcome people overcoming fears and like this story, there's story and heart there. And, and I'm like, I'm just going to make this stuff that has story and heart anyway. Like I, I'm not necessarily going to just put on like a ride along video where I'm, you know, like those are great. It's like super useful for people learning to fly or it's interesting or whatever, but I want to do something a little different. Yeah. And it's gotta be frustrating. <laughs> you put in all that work and your mind, you hit upload. You're like, all right, here it goes. I'm going to be viral. I'm going to get a million followers on this video right now. Boom. A week later, no one watched it. It's like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? 
Yeah, yeah. You can constantly be chasing that too. Yeah. That's that's what I was saying. It's like, yeah, you could constantly be trying to guess, oh, what is it to people? And they have all these like graphs and charts and like little things like where do people click? Where do they stop watching? Where do they come back to watch? Where Like what are the key moments? And you can really like break it all all down and try to get specific with it and figure that all that stuff out. Or you can just kind of like do stuff that you enjoy and hope people come along for the ride. Like sort of like if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm just coming from more of that place of like, I'm going to share the passion of aviation and, and the actual experience of being a general aviation pilot, um, doing what all the different things I do with aviation, like family trips and work trips, flying myself around, you know, different places for, for work. I'm going to portray all that stuff in the most honest way that I can with story. And then, you know, hopefully people will watch. Yeah. And I'm not a YouTube creator yet. I want to get an airplane and make videos, but I'd imagine that having that approach and having uh, not going viral in your first 10, 15, 20 videos is probably very beneficial for your mindset. Because if you put your first video out there and you get a million views, the chances of that happening again are so slim. And one, you're either going to quit Two, you're going to chase YouTube or you're going to chase uh, clickbaity titles. And, and three, you're not going to put in the work consistently to build up your platform because you're going to chase that high of getting a million views over and over and over again. And you won't consider any video a success. You won't consider any video a success until you get over that viewpoint. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So. I want to talk about the Cherokee 6. Why? You talked about your other airplane that you bought and sold. What was it about the Cherokee 6, specifically the one that you found? And I watched your video, and I will say, it is one of the only videos that I've watched more than once. I think you and Casey and Eistat probably have the videos that I've sat down and watched more than once just because they were so good and so put together, like well, put together so well. And it was very fun to watch. My wife's actually the one that sent it to me, and she is like, you have to get this guy on the podcast. She sent it to me probably about... I don't know, like eight months ago. So I apologize for not doing it earlier, but <laughs> she said it to me again. And nonetheless, here we are. But uh, talk about buying this Cherokee 6 and wanting to do a project airplane. Yeah, so we were looking, you know, I was going to sell, knew that I wanted a Cherokee 6. I did a lot of research about other airplane types and we wanted an airplane that could carry more stuff than the Cherokee 180, would go a little bit faster and would have more range. So, you know, less fuel stop. Our typical family trip would be like from LA to Sedona or maybe beyond that. So it would be like three hour, three to five hour trip. And, um, you know, my family likes to pack a lot of stuff. So we were really bumping up against the space and the weight in the 180. We were kind of always near max gross. I didn't really like how that airplane flew in the summer. Um, at max gross, we have, you know, mountains over here and yeah. all in the, in the West in the, in the Western U S. So, um, we were looking for something that could carry more and would just be more comfortable. So I settled in on the Cherokee six and then we were looking, we actually didn't look that long. It was probably a, a couple months. And, um, of course, like you get impatient, right? Like, and, and I sold my 180, I think. And I don't remember the, exactly the timing, but I think I sold it pretty much before I even bought the other one. Um, and we eventually we found this one online and it was like, there was just like one like blurry picture of it sort of on the trade of plane <laughs> ad. I remember the ad and my buddy, um, Don, who's a mechanic in Florida, he lives like at an air park and he had helped me. I met him up through a, a forum, a type forum. He had helped me find the 180 
like three years before buy it. And that plane was based out of Atlanta and he picked it up and then like put an engine monitor in and did a little bit of cosmetic work. He, you know, fixed it up a little bit before I had somebody ferry it out. Um, and then, so he was helping me find this other plane and he sent this listing to me. He said, well, what about this? I wasn't really, you know, do you want to do a, a project? And I was like, I don't know. Like, do you want to do a project? I'm not the one who's <laughs> yeah. going to really be doing I don't doing think you this. understand. You're the one that's going to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, uh, I guess so. I mean, yeah, you know, it's just going to take a while. It'll probably take some time. I was like, well, how long do you think it's going to take? He's like, oh, maybe like six months. And like, you know, it took 18 months or Holy smokes. And, and not, he had not his fault. Yeah. Um, there were, there were things that delayed us along the way of the, the renovation of it. And also you get into it and you're like, well, if we're in there, we're going to do this. We should do that. Oh, while we're in there, let's do this. You know, it's like, well, that doesn't make sense to tear that apart later. Let's just do it now. So right. the, the, the scope of it sort of expanded, but, um, so it's interesting. Yeah, so you're quoted uh, six months essentially for the plane to be start to finish. Was there like a guesstimate on price too? Where you're like, ah, he's like, yeah, you'll buy it for thirty, and maybe you'll put like fifty in, and then six months later, you're one hundred twenty thousand dollars <laughs> deep into it. No, I well, I did a I did a lot of research and I made like a spreadsheet, which was you know like, hey, how much is this engine going to cost? You know, mm-hmm. like I would ask him things that he would know about, but he didn't know you know, like I had to price out all the avionics and then talk to these shops. And we had a, like I bought the avionics and then had a shop wire them in the stack and then he installed them. So like okay. we saved money, you know, he was working at a, at a super friendly rate for me. And uh, we saved a lot of money doing this, you know, things that way that it's not like I took it to a shop and they did everything. Like this was, you know, like a, a friend do it helping with the project. So, um, but yeah, we had like a spreadsheet and, Kind of, I kind of figured out, you know, worst case scenario where we would be, and we didn't go much over that. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but the thing is that the project was was so long, it took so long that like, even keeping track of that stuff was just sort of like pretty loosey goosey. He'd be like, oh yeah, you know, it wasn't like super official. It was just like, oh well, we got this. Should I get all these plat? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll keep note of it. And it was just sort of like we'd settle up every now and then and. And because the project was so long, I thought like, oh, well, that last six months was pretty good at work. Let's do this all this other thing. So it grew a little bit, you know. Was there any moments where you're like, what the heck am I doing? I've wasted so much money. This plane's never going to be finished. I just want to go fly. Uh, My wife's tired of me spending thousands of dollars on an airplane that isn't here that we can't enjoy. Or were you kind of all understanding the mission and all for everything? No, there was definitely a point near the end where I was like, okay, this is like... Let's get this done. And there, there was delays that we were experiencing with this particular piece of plastic for the 1973 Piper Cherokee Six, where like the plastic, the, the place that like makes the plastic um, didn't have a PMA authorization for this one particular window of that 1973, which is like totally unique. And he had already thrown out all the other plastic that was cracked. So like they said, we can't sell you this part unless we have, you know, like a part that you send us that we put in the mold and we say like, Hey, yeah, it's okay for, you know, the, the, you know, part, the PMA process It's like, whatever, this whole like FAA legal thing or whatever. So like I spent like months trying to like track down another piece of plastic 
from another airplane owner that I could like send to them and like put in the mold and they could say, yeah, we can make it. Like it was this whole like ridiculous bureaucracy legal thing. And like, we just got delayed with stuff like that. And at, at a certain point after that, I was like, I need to just come pick up this plane, whatever, wherever <laughs> it's at. Cause he was like, I still want to do, you know, this, that I was like, I'm coming on this date, like whatever it is, like, let's just, and he's like, okay, fine. Like, well, you know, it was like, let's just call it, you know, <laughs> you got to just sort of abandon it. So it was pretty much done, Yeah. but there was like little things that we still wanted to do that just didn't, didn't, you know, get done, which was fine. He did a, an amazing job. Like, yeah, so I'm so grateful. Let's take a break from today's episode and hear from our sponsor, RAA. A great retirement from the airline industry starts with finding the right financial planning partner. And that's why RAA's approach to financial services is exclusively built around the needs, concerns, and desires of the airline community. I guess you could say it's in their DNA because RAA was created by pilots to serve pilots. And having proudly served pilots for more than 30 years, RAA has built a financial planning approach designed to not only meet your goals and needs, but also address the unique short and long-term concerns that accompany a career in aviation. Because whether you're just entering the airline industry or nearing your final flight, the team at RAA is ready to support your journey from takeoff to touchdown. Learn more about the benefits of working with an RAA airline specialized advisor at raa.com forward slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. Was it everything you thought it was going to be? So like when you finally got to fly for the first time, was it uh, just like the best feeling ever? Like we finally put in so much work, so much time, so much money into this airplane or you take off and you're like, that's it? <laughs> I thought it'd be better. <laughs> well, it was awesome. It was definitely awesome. But I think like, you know, you like I waited so long and then like, you know, you're also in this, like I had to fly, I was flying back from Florida to California with a flight instructor who I didn't know and hadn't met who was great. Um, and that was really fun. But I was like getting to know the plane and like I had only had like three hours in a PA-32 at that point just for like insurance purposes mm -hmm. or whatever. So I was like, it was basically like I'm flight training. So it was kind of a weird like the moment. It wasn't like this great moment where I'm like, yeah, I've got it. Like we're doing it. You know, it was still awesome, but I was like also concentrating on like a lot of other stuff. So sort of like, yeah, just we're flying, you know, <laughs> it was like more flight training. And um, but it was really exciting that trip. Um, I had never done a, you know, law, big cross country trip like that. I learned a ton and I'm, you know, flying this air, new to me airplane that is recently renovated. It was, it was amazing. It was so great. What was the first trip with the family? I know, uh, your wife had some hesitancy about the smaller airplane, but was it, uh, did she have immediate love with this airplane or did it take some convincing too? Um, by the time we, we got this one, she was more on board. Um, you know, going places. Um, I'm trying to remember what our first trip, I don't remember what our actual first trip in this airplane was. Um, but when she sat in it, she's like, Oh man, this is great. Like she hadn't sat in a, in a, in a Cherokee six, a PA 32 before. And, um, she just like loved the room and the, you know, the interior looks nice. And she was like, yeah, this is nice. What was it about the Cherokee six that really sold you? I know you kind of talked about it's a little bit bigger than the 180. Uh, did you always want to stay in the Piper family or were you willing to, to venture out, you know, RV 10 Cirrus? Uh, I know price point is a very different, but uh, in your price point, was it just the Cherokee six that you were really looking at? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was looking at Bonanzas and, you know, there's not a lot of single engine six seat airplanes. The six I think is probably the most affordable, and another thing that drew me to it was that 
um, it was fixed gear, which I, I wanted fixed gear. I didn't want um, the speed benefit for me of the retractable gear was not really worth the trade off as far as the maintenance cost, possible things that could go wrong and the insurance costs. So the fixed gear was a big was a big thing. And that which really is about the simplicity of the airplane. It was so similar to my 180 and I was really involved in the maintenance of that. Highly recommend that for airplane owners to be involved in the annuals and all the maintenance to really get to know the airplane. I was really involved in the maintenance of the 180. So I thought, man, the six is it's pr- almost the same thing, just like a bigger airplane. But like the flap system is the same. It does have a, a constant speed propeller, which is a little different. But you know, so much of it is is similar. Uh, I thought, well, I already know that airplane really well. I helped out with the maintenance, and this is just like two more cylinders and a few things different. But it's going to fly pretty similarly, and the maintenance is going to be pretty similar. It's going to be has very simple systems that are pretty affordable to maintain. The parts are pretty widely available for it. It's not like some uncommon special airplane. Um, so it's pretty affordable as far as, you know, being a six seat airplane to maintain. So I think for those, for those cost reasons and maintenance things, um, I was really drawn to the six. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of, I mean, I, I never really thought about a Cherokee 6 until I saw your plane. And obviously your plane's beautiful. So everyone that sees your plane's probably like, oh, Cherokee 6, let's do it. But not all Cherokee 6s look like yours. <laughs> um, but it, you're right. It's when looking at like a Bonanza, I mean, prices are crazy right now, but a Bonanza, it's like, all right, cool. Maybe a little bit faster. doesn't carry as much or it's right around the same. But you're right. Retractable gear, the insurance is ridiculous. Or just the peace of mind of like less mechanics, less things to go wrong. Like not having to, to have an emergency landing with uh, your gear up because your gear won't come down or just that kind of stuff. Like you said, it's just such a great peace of mind and sacrificing that a little bit of speed, it's no big deal, especially when you're saving money on insurance and then you can go ahead and put more money into more fun flying. Right, yeah. And I think like uh, it would be great to have a retractable gear airplane that goes faster, but for us, it like the you know cost difference didn't out outweigh like what the you know and it makes sense for what the speed gain would be be like you know you gain 10 or 15 knots so set seven like seven minutes for every hour that you fly or something is what you're gaining so maybe on a three-hour trip we're going to save like 20 minutes and it's like well i'll just get them out of the house 20 minutes sooner which is easier (laughs) said than done (laughs) but um but yeah, that's how kind of how I thought about it. I'm like, I can either just like, well, just 20 more minutes on a typical trip or, you know, it's going to be hundreds or thousands of dollars more a year. I was like, well, let's just put that money into something else. So is the Cherokee 6 where it stops or are you constantly thinking, you know, as the, the family, I don't know if the family gets bigger, but as uh, as your career progresses and as you kind of see other airplanes, you're like, oh, that 310 looks kind of cool or, oh, that Seneca looks cool. Is there any chance you're going to upgrade to another airplane or are you kind of happy where you are with the Cherokee 6? I've been researching it. I'm Ooh. not going to lie. I'm super happy with the 6. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I was like, well, as the more I fly and I get into like weather or I have trips that are starting had a couple of trips that were like marginal about icing, um, which will be upcoming videos where we get almost get into some icing kind of situations and stuff. I started thinking like, oh, man, it'd be nice to be able to be more confidently, like get through a layer that might have ice. So like a, a flight into known ice uh, equipped airplane would be great. And so I've started looking into that and 
the price difference and owner operating costs is so drastic from where we are now that um, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon, but definitely starting to look into it. I mean, it would be, I would love to have like a Turbo Seneca, Fiki Turbo Seneca or something would be amazing. And you could just like really use that plane to travel and uh, more reliably, which would be awesome. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. And it's funny as you are in aviation, I'm sure it wasn't too long after you got your one, not your 180, your Cherokee six that eventually you kind of, you know, you see the Seneca, you see, you see, I'm not necessarily a King Air or like a Mirage or something bigger and faster and just not better, but better at the same time. And you're like, that would be pretty yeah. cool to have that one day. It's like, I'm totally happy yeah. with where I am, but like, you know what? That would be sweet. The videos would look extra crispy with that. Oh yeah. I mean, it would be, it would be so fun. Maybe one day when I have the time and uh, money to put to it, then we could we could think about it. And that's probably yeah. I guess like oh maybe I'll live somewhere else, not LA, and then I'll like you know commute myself reliably with uh, you know Turbo Fiki Twin or something, um, you know to where I need to be for all my jobs. That would be awesome. But right now that's. It's not going to happen right now, but maybe, and you've got to, you've got to keep dreaming, right? Like that's why, I mean, most people that are in aviation are sort of like dreamers in some way. I think like yeah. we're, we're always thinking about this, like these lofty goals that take a long time to achieve. Like it is not, it's not like tomorrow, anything is going to change for you in aviation. Like Things take a long time. It takes a lot of work to get to it. If I want to fly this twin, like twin, I got to go get my multi. I've got to get hours. I got to get the, and it's like all these steps, right? But then you, you go through all those steps. You set your sights on it. You go through all that. You work hard for it and you, and you get there. And it's the, the journey along the way is what's super fun. And when you get there, it's so fulfilling in every way. And that's what aviation is, right? Like it's, it's uh, so fulfilling in those ways. And so I think you've got to keep setting your sights on the next thing and at least thinking about it, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I also saw an interesting series. We're both sponsored by Jason Miller, Learn the Finer Points, best ground school app ever, shameless plug. But I saw a cool series that you did with Jason and your wife where Jason would kind of prepare your wife for a situation where the worst thing happens. Uh, if you don't have Garmin Smart Glide in your plane, which you should, but <laughs> if you don't have that button to push where it can glide you back home or uh, the actual one where it takes you back and auto lands, it's important to have some someone in the airplane that knows what to do in an emergency. They don't have to have their license, but just be able to land the plane, that extra peace of mind to know that your wife could put the plane down if you were hypoxic, passed out, you had a heart attack, whatever it is. Uh, talk about that process. Was that something you generated that you wanted to happen or was she talking about how she wants to fly? Mm, that's uh, That was definitely me saying, hey, I think this would be a good idea. Um, and the her transformation from the first time that she looked into the cockpit of the 180 to where she is now with flying is like a, a total 180. It's crazy. Um, she was in the beginning terrified <laughs> to fly, to be a passenger in the back of the, in the back of the Cherokee or in the front of the Cherokee either. In any case, she would um, basically have to like have some kind of anti-anxiety medication to be able to get in there. And that, that was, I felt awful about it. And I was like, we've got to work at getting you more comfortable. And as we would do more flights together, she would get a little more comfortable, but she was still really scared. 
um, of it. And then the reason that we did the, the pinch hitter thing was not, was not necessarily that was not to like help her with her fears. It was, it was really, what if something happens to me? Like, I want you to be, you to understand how to like get this plane down and get to safety. Cause it's a remote possibility, but it's still a possibility. And I think the side, one of the benefits, additional benefits of it was going to be like, maybe this will make her more comfortable in general. It'll make you more comfortable in turbulence. If you're like controlling the plane, I'm sure you've experienced that. Like for me flying in a commercial airliner, I get, get bounced around or whatever the turbulence when I'm not in control, it freaks me out a little bit, but when I'm flying, I'm totally fine with it. So I thought that same thing might happen with her. And, um, I had been watching, you know, Jason Miller's videos for a long time on YouTube. And I, I was like, this guy's an amazing flight instructor. So I just reached out to him and I was like, Hey, what do you think about doing this like collaboration? And uh, he was game for it, which was great. And the experience was totally transformative for her. Um, and super fun, just like on a you know personal level to get to know Jason and his family and become friends. Like it was such a great experience overall. How quickly did you notice her anxiety kind of drop down once she had more of an understanding or when she was at the controls? Was it immediate? Did it take a couple lessons? Or uh, I guess what I'm asking is, were you surprised at her reaction to learning how to fly? Not you know, not learning how to fly, but learning how to control a, a dangerous situation. She was so completely terrified to take the controls. Like on the way up there, she basically was like crying about it on our flight up there. And a little bit of this is in the video where she's, she's had so much anxiety about it. Um, and then, you know, before the flight, she was really anxious and nervous about it. And it took, I mean, I think we, we flew with Jason for two days when we were up there and then he came back down here and we flew two more days. Um, and by, I want to say by the middle of the second day, she was like really comfortable, which to me was in totally insane. It wasn't like she put her hands on the yoke. She's like, oh, this is great. It, it definitely took that whole first day and maybe a little bit more of the, the second morning. I think by the second morning, she was actually more confident. She came in feeling like, I actually feel good about this. Um, and by the end of that second day, she was like, I hate to admit it, I, I actually like this, which totally blew my mind. Like it to the point of where she wants to do more or is she just happy with what she's doing? I think if it, if it didn't require like the book study and the written test and like so much like commitment over and over, like she would, she, she would do it. Like she would love to, she would love to fly, right? She would love to do more flying, but I don't think she wants to put in the time and effort it really takes to get a private pilot license. I don't think she's like, you have to really want it bad to do it. Cause it's, it's not an easy thing to do to find the time and ded to dedicate, to do it right. And the discipline to see it through. I don't think she's, she's going to do that, but she loves to actually like fly the airplane, which is cool. Can't you land better than you? <laughs> no, <laughs> she, she had her lane. I mean, we, uh, we definitely still need to work on, yeah. we, she needs to do more to like, she, she could probably, she could get the airplane on the ground and, you know, walk, walk away, have everybody walk away from it. But the airplane I think would likely be damaged or, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. like she's going to grease a bunch of landings. She did land the airplane herself. Um, but I think we, we should do some more lessons. We just haven't had time to do it yet. <laughs> haven't prioritized that yet. Yeah. Uh, be more good or be good content, right? Keep it going. Yeah. 
<laughs> tell yeah. Jason to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so future, possibly a bigger, faster airplane doing all these videos. Um, when you see yourself retiring from your, your professional job, uh, do you see yourself diving more into YouTube, creating more videos and going bigger and better? Or are you kind of happy with how this is going and you keep the same pace? Oh, I mean, even before that, I would love to ramp up more. I have ideas that I want to do that are definitely bigger and I think better. Um, and I'm starting to do some of those. I would, yeah, I would love to keep it going and make it. I mean, I would love to have time to do to do more. Um, and I'd love to have the channel have like some more sponsors so that, um, you know, like we can do more, um, so that I can make it a little bit more of a priority and, and do a little bit more on it. It would be really, really fun. Um, yeah, I would love to keep doing the YouTube thing. I mean, it's fun for me to create my own stuff. I, I enjoy it. And, um, as long as it's fun, I'll keep doing it. If it's, I think if it turns into like a grind too much, then I'll probably back off it a little bit. Cause I've already like, you know, I already have a job that sometimes can feel that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes it's mostly awesome, but sometimes it can definitely feel like, feel like a job job, you know, yeah, I, don't want, yeah. I don't want it to, to feel that way. And everything kind of has its peaks and valleys, right? So even like this, or even like a podcast here, like there's some times where I'm just not feeling it. It's not something I'm really interested in doing, but still do it. You just push through, you know, you work through the valleys and enjoy the peaks. So there's going to be a time when that happens. And if you need to step away for a week or two and, and miss a video or ever how frequent you post, then so be it. It'll be good. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, keeps me going on the YouTube videos is like the aviation community and the connection with other people is one of the reasons that I, I've been doing it and that I really enjoy about it. Like we have an awesome community on my patreon site and we have a discord chat i'm like i've gotten to know some of the people over there and we've flown together and like i'm seeing you know becoming friends with people who are really passionate about aviation and then um you know like following them through their aviation journey and sharing those exciting moments um that's really fulfilling and the connection with the community like i get a lot of people who talk about that pinch hitter video saying like you know oh i was getting my private pilot license or i had an airplane and my wife would never fly with me we saw she saw that video we watched it together and now it's totally you know changed like she wants to go she wants to do that same kind of thing like she's way more open to it and i'm like that's awesome you know like to be able to to have that uh, connection and reaction, have people react to the material that way and the content and what we're putting out and to connect with it is uh, really rewarding um, as a creative person. So um, as long as that is continuing, I'm definitely game. As someone who, who is very much into their career and, and is humble about the way they approach things and has the right mindset for YouTube and how a pilot should approach aviation content on YouTube, um, there's a lot of people who probably watch your videos. You know, they're 16, 17. They're getting into this industry. They want to have YouTube channels. They want to be content creators and they want to do it with aviation. Um, what would you, I know we talked about this a little bit, but here's like the chance to give them like three tips for success. Obviously you can tie this into like your secrets and camera work or whatever it is. If it's just practice makes perfect, but what would you recommend them? Maybe three, four, five tips to be the best content creator they can be visually and also to make sure they stay away from uh, some YouTube craziness. Well, I think I would, I definitely would want to say before any of this that like having cameras in the cockpit is a huge potential for um, distraction and an accident chain to start. 
So my number one tip is to make sure that you have a lot of experience as a proficient and safe pilot before you even think about doing that kind of stuff. And it's something that I take really seriously and think about every time that I fly, um, trying to make my cameras set it and forget it, not worrying about what the cameras are capturing while I'm flying, not worrying about, you know, setting things up. So I'm not like changing batteries or cards or like worrying about it at all because the, the potential is there and it's real. And, um, I think it can, it, for, you know, student pilots who are like, I want to document my journey. It's like, man, you've got your hands full, just, you know, just flying, just learning how to fly. Like you're going to throw this other thing in the mix, like be super careful with it. Make sure you're setting yourself up in a way that it's not going to distract you. So I think that's, that's really number one for me is like the safety aspect of it. Um, and just making sure that you're setting yourself up to have a safe, a safe experience with it. Um, other tips, let's see, what are the other tips to create, to create aviation content? Um, I mean, I guess like for me, I'm just always come from story, you know, like what is, what story are you trying to tell? What are you trying to communicate about aviation? What is it that you like about it? What is, what is it that you want to say with it? And I, I don't know if that applies to everybody because a lot of aviation videos are like more kind of ride along things, but um, those aren't really the ones that I like to watch. I like to watch the more story oriented stuff. So that's, you know, where I come from, from that background. So I always think like, what is, you know, what stories do you want to tell? And then, um, set yourself up to do that. Um, did I answer your question? I'm not sure. What was it? Was there more? Oh, it was just your tips for, for success. So I guess you, you kind of are, are hitting on it. Another one would be that I'd ask is people are obsessed with the best cameras. Uh, would you recommend just film with what you got? Or is there like a certain amount of quality you do need now to be successful? Uh, film with what you got for sure, especially for YouTube. Um, and like GoPros are great. Um, if you have something else like iPhones and you can, you want to mount an iPhone in there, um, that's going to be great too. I've, I, I, I'm not trying to like plug my Patreon. This totally sounds like plug, but I, I, I do want to mention that like I have, I've made a video series about put, you know, GoPro mounts and settings and post-production that I have on my Patreon site for members there who are really want a deep dive and we talk about it on the Discord channel, like all, all the, you know, settings and tips and, you know, stuff like that um, for creating any kind of content. It really applies to anything, but it's really geared towards aviation content. Um, so we talk about that. And the reason I put that on the Patreon is that it, I don't want my YouTube channel to be like tutorial, GoPro tutorials and stuff. I want my YouTube channel to be like these bigger, like story oriented things. So like these, this content doesn't really fit, fit there. And, uh, you know, like they're much longer and it's like nitty gritty of GoPro kind of settings. But to answer your question, like, yeah, film with what you got. You can make a GoPro look really great uh, if you know what you're doing with it. You can make an iPhone look really great if you know what you're doing with it. Um, you definitely don't need to run out and like buy a ton of equipment or anything. I, I pretty much shoot with like the GoPros and I, I was shooting with some other cameras. Um, I switched back to my iPhone now that I got the 12. It's just really good. It's like fine, you know. What do you shoot for kind of your talking pieces? Do you still use the iPhone or do you have like a Sony camera or a Canon camera? So, yeah, but like, I, it's funny because I haven't had a lot of that in my videos until I'm starting to get back into, I have a couple videos coming out where like I'm in the hangar, I introduce something or I talk, I'm reviewing a product or whatever, like for this other thing. And I was using my Sony 
A7S II that I had, but um, I actually like dropped it. <laughs> so <laughs> the lens is messed up. But for work, I have I have a red Komodo. I have oh, nice. red mon- Monstro camera. <laughs> I have like some other more like professional cameras. Yeah. And I think it's telling that like I typically don't even use those for this stuff because they're bigger. Like they're just a little takes a little more effort. Like batteries are bigger, charging the battery, like transporting the stuff. Like I just use the thing that is very easy. I was using for a while the DJI Osmo Pocket. You know, yeah. the little, it's like a little thing on the, yeah. that has a gimbal. It just fits in your pocket. And then I could do these little shots. For a long time, I was using that before I got the new phone. And now I kind of went just back to the phone. But yeah, I think I'm going to be using the, the Komodo for like the stuff in the hangar just because I have it and I don't really have anything else. And I can monitor it. Like I can set up a shot and look at my phone and see the shot uh, and control the camera from there. But I can't do that with anything else. So I think I'll use that. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah, I, it's hard because I mean, even me thinking about like doing YouTube content, it's like, all right, well, I need to buy a camera. I need to get the nicest camera possible. It's like, no, you just probably need to get one that works well and is easy and one that you understand how to use. Because if I get some 6000 or not $6,000, i am guessing there are $6,000 cameras, but like $4,000 camera, I'm probably going to be using $1,000 worth of it in like my brain power and knowing what I'm doing. I'm not going to be getting the full uh, deal there. So yeah, it's... Uh, it's an easy job yeah, to get into, right? Sure. It's just like airplanes. You want the best airplane you can get, but find the right mission for you. Yeah, with the camera, like I use the GoPro yeah, 7 like still. And they have, they have the 8, 9, and 10. But would you know that looking at the stuff? Uh, like, would you think like, oh, this is an old GoPro, an older GoPro? No, it's like, if you, you can get so much out of it. Like I squeeze every last drop on a low dynamic range out of it with the settings that I use. I um, and then I do. Well, Eric, like you have successfully, on it is can't talk. Successfully what I would normally do for like a professional project the as far as like the this color part, grading goes. It's just the rapid fire um, question. You know what you're so doing this is just going to be quick aviation themed questions. Really good. And you say the quickest and first answer that comes to your head. I would definitely would not go out and buy like All right. And I do have to say for the first time, the rapid fire section is sponsored. We are sponsored by Sirius XM, which is crazy. I'm just so thankful. Uh, there might be an ad plug here. I don't have it yet, but there might be another ad plug going in before this. But if there's not, shout out to Sirius XM. I use it all the time. Flying the latitude and uh, also radio in the car. So probably the best way to listen to radio. But anyways, here we go. Some rapid fire questions for you. Number one is what is your favorite airplane ever made? Uh, my favorite airplane ever made is the one that I'm currently flying. Do you have a favorite corporate jet? One that you see and you're like, dang, that'd be cool to fly. Hmm. I don't really know the corporate jet like models and stuff. <laughs> Just say citation. Then that always works. That's yeah, a citation. citation. Or, or Gulfstream. A, Le- a Gulfstream. <laughs> yeah. Gulfstream. Don't say, don't say Learjet. Don't say Learjet. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about airline? Do you have like a favorite airliner at all? Like do you love the 787 or you kind of just stay in your own lane and love your small piston? Yeah, I just stay in my lane. I don't know that stuff as well. Like I, I'm, I'm not like I'm definitely like an aviation nerd, but more like general aviation stuff. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Ugliest airplane? Yeah. Oh man. Like one that's. Just, I think all airplanes, all airplanes are beautiful. To an extent, I've never seen an ugly airplane. You haven't seen very many airplanes. My, my cousin told me that <laughs> once. He said, all airplanes are beautiful. Somewhere, I agree yeah. with him. Yeah. All right. Well, you keep that in mind and you let me know when you, you will see one eventually. And I, we'll meet up at Oshkosh <laughs> in like five years and be like, I found it. And then I'll re-record this part and we'll put your answer in there. Sound good? You know what? Um, 
I'm going to be on the lookout for ugly airplanes and I will take a picture of the next ugly airplane I see and send it to you. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Uh, what's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Man, I wish I knew um, earlier how much fun flying would be and how much it would completely change my life as far as like what, what, we're, what we get to do and the fulfillment that it would bring. Uh, out of, from the challenges, I wish I knew that earlier, so I would have, um, you know, jumped on things a lot, a lot sooner. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? Who would I like to be? Meet Did you say most. Meet? meet. Oh, who would I like to meet? Um, be someone well, you look up to. It could be this, like Charles Lindbergh. Uh, anyone that's yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna say Lindbergh. I think just because, man, his account, you know, what he did, and especially with pioneering instrument flight and just so many questions. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about aviation? My favorite thing about aviation is definitely um, the personal growth that comes from it, from all the challenges. It's, it's just so rewarding um, and how it challenges you in like so many different ways uh, and how you have to figure out your flight plan and the routes and every little problem that comes along that you have to solve, um, how that challenges you and how you grow from it. It's just so rewarding. What's the hardest flight you've ever flown? I think the hardest flight I've ever flown was probably, um, our trip up to bend Oregon where we got above a smoke layer. There's, I made a video about it. We get above a smoke layer and, um, we kind of get trapped up there and my family is getting hypoxic. We're only at 11,000 feet and they were not feeling well. And I felt like we were kind of stuck up there. We couldn't really descend through the smoke. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable with that. And they were just not doing well. And by the time we landed, everybody was just like totally sick and it was just horrible. It was just not, a, it was probably, yeah, it was the worst flight for sure. Would you say that was one of the hardest decisions you've had to make while flying a plane is whether or not to turn around to land or to keep going? Well, that one, it wasn't such a hard decision because turning around and going forward was probably about the same amount of time. And I didn't really think descending wasn't, wasn't like, oh, this is a hard decision what to do. Um, it just was, was terrible. Probably the toughest decision was, I don't know, there's been a couple. One where I didn't, decided not to go, uh, not to fly because the turbulence looked really bad. I made a video about that one. And a, a couple other ones where we had to divert because of weather with friends in the plane. Those are always tough. This is a rapid fire, right? I'm talking too much. <laughs> You're good. Uh, what's your favorite flight you've ever flown? Like, the, was it the first time you got the Cherokee 6, take it up and go fly, or uh, seeing your family in it for the first time, or something else? Oh, my favorite flight I've ever flown. That's a good question. Yeah, may, maybe it was our first time we got the uh, the Cherokee 180 right after I got it. We we had a little our first family trip was up to Monterey and um, it's kind of like our first long trip together. Um, first time we flew somewhere and like rented a car and had a little vacation. That was really fun. That was really exciting. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? My favorite airport I've ever landed at. Um, I mean, I really like Catalina because it feels like you're, you are, you know, far away from, LA and you're <laughs> just right there. 
What's your least favorite? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be your least favorite airport, but you could just have like all your landings are either bad there, the crosswinds are really bad, just the, the conditions always don't seem conducive for you when you go there. Mm. My least favorite airport. I don't I don't know. I guess man, I I, I honestly I I don't have a least favorite. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. That works. That's good. Don't have a least favorite. Uh, would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Uh, I like both, but I'll say VFR for the freedom. If you are uh, making a fuel stop somewhere new, you get you need to go get some food. You're grabbing a crew car. What kind of food are you guys looking for? You go to the Chick Fil A route. You go fast food. Or you try to find a local like barbecue joint. Uh, we'll we'll definitely not do fast food. We'll try to find. Um, a night like a nice local joint there you go uh would you rather fly over mountains beaches or the cities uh mountains what it uh would you rather fly one long trip so like the longest flight you can do in the cherokee six or as many touch and goes as you could do i like a long flight because it means i'm going somewhere what's the hardest check ride you've ever taken well i guess the instrument I've only I've only taken two, so yeah, <laughs> instrument. <laughs> What's the biggest win of your aviation career? The biggest win? Yeah, like the best moment. The best moment. I think the best moment is anytime, you know, I'm just flying with with my family and we're, you know, like rocking out to some music at ten thousand feet on our way somewhere fun. What's the biggest regret of your career if you have one? Just not not starting sooner, not finishing my private um, back when I started it. I think I know the answer to this question, but if you could do it all again, would you buy a Piper or a Cessna or are you all team Piper all the way? Oh, a Piper. I mean, I've, I've loved the airplanes that I've, I've bought. Although, yeah. you know, you, you don't know any different. Maybe owning a Cessna would be just as awesome. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm just happy with we'll it. We'll never yeah. know. That's funny. All right. Well, those are all of the rapid fire questions. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate your time. Keep making those awesome videos. And who knows, if you ever want to sell your Cherokee 6 one day, uh, give me a call if I haven't bought a plane by then. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for having me. Man. Yeah, thank really you so much. It. I appreciate you. Have a great day. And that's a wrap of episode 207 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. It's crazy being back. I can't believe those five weeks went by so fast. Uh, I don't know if my interviewing has changed or it's got any worse, uh, a little bit rusty, but here we are and the interviews will be back. If you want someone on the podcast, email me, pilottopilothq at gmail.com. I try to email back as much as I can. Obviously, you can imagine it's a little crazy right now, so if I don't email you back right away, don't be offended. It might take a little bit of time, but send me all the cool stories. I would love to interview every single pilot in the world and get their stories on here. But Aviation Nation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to steal your friend's phone and download this podcast to their phone so it's the most listened to podcast in the world. Yes, do that. <laughs> Maybe don't. That's probably not the best thing to say. But anyways, I hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.